3: Good morning and welcome to The Line. We're coming to you live from Heritage Radio Studios in Bushwick, Brooklyn. I'm very excited to welcome my guest today, Andrew Tarlow. He owns and operates several businesses in Brooklyn, including Diner, Marlo and Daughters, She-Wolf, Roman's, Renard's, and the bar Achilles' Heel. Uh, Many people have uh, anointed him over the years in the press as being responsible for, as one of the people who's shaped Brooklyn Dining over the past 15 or so years. Uh, When Diner opened in 1999, there was really nothing like it in that area of Williamsburg. Uh, That area was drastically different than it is today. He's opened up several uh, other businesses, including a store that sells uh, clothing wear and purses that is uh, run by his wife That's right. and uh, Andrew thank you and uh, welcome to the show yeah thanks for having me so let's start off <clears throat> childhood in Long Island you're pretty close to the city uh, you became a painter and that yep. kind of brought you over into the city uh, I'm curious though when did you really absolutely know that you wanted to try to make a life for yourself in New York City
4: uh, I would say the city continued to bring me back after university. So I would say, I guess in '95, I moved to Williamsburg. I think that's about about the time, and I kind of like settled into that neighborhood and felt really um, inspired by like the desolation of it and also its proximity to New York City for those that weren't in Williamsburg in the or early born
3: in the early <laughs> 90s i mean i kind of envision it as that you know in fight club when he moves to that house it's in the middle of where he's hitting golf yeah. balls in the middle of the street it's just it, there was nothing going on nothing right there. so could you like stand in the middle of the street and in the middle of the night there's no foot traffic there was no bars in that area
4: right so yeah there was basically no foot traffic you could go to the waterfront and you definitely could hit golf balls. That whole area on the waterfront was all abandoned. And we would drive down there and park cars and, like, just sit on the docks, like, the beat-up old docks all the time. Um, there were trucks and cars. There definitely was prostitution. There was definitely, like, things happening. So some of the roads were definitely not, like, you could just stay in the middle.
3: Was it dirty romantic? Was it just kind of desolate? It, like, what What it was, was the vibe back it was, then?
4: It was kind of all of it. It was there were it was more it was more desolate than um, romantic, probably. There were a couple bars though. You know, there were some old school places that people had been drinking in. So there were some small little hubs for people.
3: So what exactly were you doing to make money then?
4: At that point, when I first moved there, I was doing everything kind of odd jobs. I definitely was busing at a restaurant. I definitely was um, working on sets and like building sets. I would do like painting projects in people's apartments. I kind of just any odd job I could get. So you were working at the Odeon? At that point, I wasn't working at the Odeon. At that point, I was working at a restaurant on Park Avenue that doesn't exist anymore as a bus boy. I didn't work in the Odeon until. Maybe it was 95. You know, I I probably have my dates wrong. I probably moved to Williamsburg in 93. I then went to Africa for a year and came back. And that's when I got the job at the Odeon.
3: What did Africa... What was the decision that you made in order to go to Africa, of all places that you could have traveled to? And you spent quite a long time there. Usually yeah. people go six weeks backpacking. In mm-hmm. Thailand, you spent a very long time there. How did that come about? Uh, and... Uh, and... What did it contribute to your ideas about what you you later did?
4: I mean, it opened up my world in a huge way. I just didn't... It really, like, gave me the perspective to see how other people in the world live. In the end, I did think I was going to go for probably six weeks or four weeks. I ended up kind of getting stuck there. But also, it just... I didn't realize how slow or how long it would take to get anywhere. The transportation from say Eritrea which is north of Ethiopia down to South Africa was a pretty slow process and so we ended up spending like a month in Ethiopia just not trying to go fast but that's sort of it's the pace at which you can go right so the world really like unfolds in a different way out there Um, I would say you know it was a culminating moment for me it definitely turned me into someone that I can think about other people versus thinking about myself and how do I take care of others in the world Um, I highly recommend it for any young person in the world. Did you go to Africa to do
3: anything in particular? Were you going as part of a, no, to paint, you know, there was no,
4: there was no set goal in mind besides just traveling and seeing some of the world. Yeah. It was more of an expedition. I definitely wanted to go, I definitely had this idea that I wanted to go in a very vague sense to sort of where the world began or the cradle of civilization idea, so being in Ethiopian area was pretty important, being at that part of the Red Sea and all of that. Um, but I really, I probably wasn't as thoughtful as I probably should have been. I definitely was a little bit of a whim. I was living in a loft in Williamsburg. You definitely could roller skate and rollerblade all around that room. It was massive for very little money. And um, I had no really possessions or anything. So it was easy for me to sort of pack up and go at that point. So you spend all that
3: time and then you come back. Did you feel more focused or more lost upon your return?
4: Um, I mean, I felt more focused that I wanted to stay in New York. I I felt encouraged by what I had seen in the world. And I definitely felt inspired to kind of like do something for myself. I mean, the one thing about being out there for that long is it empowers you to sort of DIY for yourself, right? You realize, like, I can feed myself. I can get shelter for myself. I can take care of myself. So in the end, it allowed me to, like, break away from my family or for any of those things and be able to, like, work for myself. Well, not for myself just yet, but work and earn money and then be able to pay my own rent and pay my own way. So you come back
3: to the United States. You come back to New York. How do you connect with Mark Firth?
4: What a great question. So... I met Mark Firth working at the Odeon. Uh, it was my first day there. And what was amazing about the Odeon at that very single moment is that Mark originally came from Africa. He had been living in Johannesburg. So we certainly had that huge connection instantly. And then also the general manager at the time was also from Zimbabwe. Now I'll tell you an insane story, this coincidence story that's insane, is that that night, my first night that I trailed there, There was a woman there that I met in Uganda, okay? So when I was in Uganda, I was in Kampala for a day and a half. And I met the only other American that I met there was this woman. And she told me about a beach in Malawi that I needed to go to, which I ended up spending a month and a half at. The first day I trailed at the Odeon, this woman was working there. Unbelievable. Isn't that insane? Yeah. And we had no connection to, to each other besides meeting for that day and a half... Her telling me to go to Malawi, I hadn't seen her or talked to her at all, right? Just like...
3: And and this is obviously well before social media, so it wasn't like you could reach out to each other and connect in any way. So you end up at the Odeon with quite a few people that have spent time in Africa. Yeah, yeah. So I felt uh, home. Oddly enough. So you're at home in New York. uh And Mark, you and Mark develop uh, a good relationship with each other, and then you start... Dreaming up an idea together?
4: Yeah. So Mark and I became best friends and roommates. We took over a loft in Williamsburg on Broadway down the street from the diner. And that's where we sort of lived for three, maybe two or three years before opening the diner, which was on the corner from where we were living.
3: And for people that don't know, Mark's M is the M in Marlow. Marlo. That's right. Cool. So... Yeah. How do you find the space, besides it being geographically close to where you live, was it something that you walked by every day and sort of looked at and the gears started turning or...
4: I mean, it was a little bit more of a lark. Mark and I were looking for spaces in the city and there were other people that we were working with at the time that we were trying to partner with or thinking we would partner with. And for a long time, we looked in the city. Well, maybe say for a year, we were thinking about doing it. And then... Really, at some point, I got into the old diner from the original landlord and he showed it around. I was like, we should just do it right here. Like, even if nobody comes, it's like worth it just from the commute standpoint just to do <laughs> it right here.
3: When you thought about it in its original incarnation, was it always going to be a restaurant?
4: It was always going to be a restaurant, but we didn't have a chef until really the last two weeks before we opened or something like that. Maybe three weeks.
3: So tell me about Caroline. How did that come to be?
4: So Caroline, we met through a mutual friend. I met her first and I kind of passed on her. And then we continued doing construction and building. And then we really didn't have anybody. And I said, Mark, we should meet this woman. Caroline, the three of us went out to dinner and we all hit it off. And really she's, you know, besides Mark, she definitely, and my wife, she definitely has been the biggest... Influence for our success up until now at that point. I mean, without having her in that kitchen, we would have been two total buffoons trying to, like, serve drinks. So
3: Caroline came from Savoy and Caroline from, a, came from, Savoy, from yeah. a pretty extensive cooking background, and she brought something to that restaurant that potentially wouldn't have been part of the discussion, right? So sor- sourcing 100%. and a... Maybe if you guys had the aesthetics and the bartending side, she was bringing a certain kitchen discipline to the table.
4: Totally. And mm-hmm. also, like, big opinions about the way that food should look and taste on a daily basis. Even though it's
3: uh, it's pretty obvious now to see uh, the sourcing on a menu, it's yeah. sort of for lack of—everybody yeah. does quote-unquote farm-to-table. Everyone's yeah. got a grass-fed burger. Many people say that they interact very closely with their farmers at every single price point of restaurants now, yeah, sure. but, but back then, uh, your meat purchasing really set you on a different path in the restaurant. Can you talk about how how that came to be in some of the partners that you've worked with over the years?
4: Sure. I mean, we when we started sourcing vegetables and we were successful at that, we really started to kind of dissect where all of our food was coming from. And so we really wanted to... Well, I was buying lambs and pigs for the kitchen to kind of keep them excited about what we were doing, and certainly they were excited. When, I think there was a moment there when um, everyone was thinking about the whole animal a little bit, right? And so we really wanted to go find the cow and really figure out how we how does our meat come to our restaurant. So we went and... And we also are really passionate about grass-fed animals. We really, or at least I fundamentally believe, it's one of the ways that we can really preserve our planet and take care of our planet and also take care of the health of the animal. So it's a huge, like, convergence of ideas. And we also live in the Northeast where there's plenty of grass. Um, we, what did we do? We, my wife's dad went to a grass-fed conference he met a man who owned a slaughterhouse in Pennsylvania. We went to that slaughterhouse, met him. He introduced us to a couple of um, grass farmers who raised cows. We bought a cow that day, stuck it in the back of my trunk. We drove it back to New York. We used it and then at, from that moment, you know, there were some interesting individuals in that car. Caroline was there. Tom Mylan was there. John Rembo was there. Dave Gould was there. Dave was the chef at Romans. Sean just left the chef at Renard. Tom obviously was the owner of Meat Hook. Um, and we bought that cow and then proceeded from there and tried to get rid of all commodity beef from the restaurant, which we obviously succeeded at. But it took a little while. Um, how how apparent was it
3: from opening day that you were going to do things differently at the restaurant, or did it evolve over time? Was there sort of, before you opened the doors, did the team decide that things would be sourced in a specific way, or did you kind of open with a more typical ethos and menu, and then it evolves maybe over the first couple months or the first year?
4: Yeah, the first menus, I mean, in the very beginning, nobody would even come to us for vegetables, right? So McCarran Park... Farmer's market was just getting started. So the way we started buying vegetables directly from farmers is that we actually ran out of food on Friday night, and we'd have to go to McCarran Park on Saturday. It's kind of how it started. Um, So it was really out of, like, a need and necessity in the beginning. But nobody would come to us at all, right? Like, if we wanted Guy Jones, even people who we are super close to now, like wouldn't have come to Brooklyn at that point.
3: What what was the... uh what was the customer response? Were you, when you opened on the first day, crickets, 100-person line,
4: overwhelmed? What was those first couple weeks like? Well, we certainly were overwhelmed because we had no staff. So even if four people walked in, it would have been busy. Um, that's for sure. The, you know, we got lucky in that there was a building, the Gretsch building across the street at that point was uh, filled with artists and people living kind of illegally in artist lofts. There wasn't a ton of kitchens there, and they really came down and really became our initial community very early on, um, and there also some other buildings around us which had similar situations. And in the end, what we realized by paying attention is that all these people didn't actually even know each other until we opened the restaurant and everyone can congregate there. So we realized what a meeting point, diner, or a restaurant really can be for a community. And that's kind of also been sort of the guiding principles of what we've been doing since then so in terms of diner
3: starting how did it grow there's a spot next door yeah and when did it open and what was your comfort level like in in expansion going from diner to the space next door which has a lot of similar characteristics but does Definitely function as an independent spot. Yeah.
4: Um, you know, I had owned a Mexican restaurant before that. So I sort of, at that point, was feeling pretty ambitious about things. Um, and then, and we had been doing, yeah, so I was feeling kind of ambitious. At the time, for Marlo and Sons, it really, my wife just said to me, if you don't take it, you're going to be upset for the rest of your life by walking past it. So I was like, okay, you're right, and we really wanted to open a store. We really thought that the neighborhood really could use a organic store at the time. It's obviously pre Whole Foods and pre all that. And so the original conception was that we would open a meeting place that was a little bit more all day, where people could actually shop and eat and drink. So, how do you make a place like the post office, the place that you have drinks at, the place that you buy your groceries at, and how does it like function on on all those levels
3: and it still to this day has a functional shop in front that sells goods and does coffee and then obviously in back you can drink and eat yes um when you when you did open the Mexican restaurant which was in the spit there were two right one Mm -hmm. was in Romans or they were one was at Romans Mm -hmm. and one was on Bedford Avenue can you talk a little bit about opening that and then they both have closed well one switched into Romans uh how did that? How did that come yeah, to be? So and you,
4: yeah. So Bonita was a super successful restaurant for us, and it was really sad to close. We had lost our lease on Bedford Avenue, and we had been there for about nine years. And I realized that the landlord had um, that it wasn't worth pursuing, since the landlord really disliked me so much, or disliked us. And in the end, you know, we work in a, a space where we try to create relationship based experiences, and it's like. Everyone else that I um, do business with and or work with, you know, we always have a pleasant relationship. So I felt like it wasn't worth it. And once I lost the original, it felt kind of wrong to keep the new one open. Um, So it was really more of like a change of direction than a place where it's like, wow, this is really not working. And the thing I actually miss the most, I miss that restaurant a lot, I talk about opening it again quite often. I was gonna ask you if yeah. you if you could open it again. If I could open a taco stand right now, I would. Mm-hmm. I mean I guess I can't do it, but you know <laughs> Yeah, just... what what
3: exactly is stopping you besides that you're incredibly busy? Is it just if you found the right spot have to be and the right it spoke spot. to
4: you, would you do a taco spot again? I mean if it were yeah, if it was the right spot for that thing. Like I don't wanna own a full on restaurant that tries to um, reinterpret Mexican food like in terms of like um, all the components that people think of when they go eat in a Mexican restaurant right I definitely would like to open a place where you can get really good tacos I think would be great
3: let me jump back to diner for one second and ask you yeah. about the menus from the beginning have there ever been printed menus or has it always been the writing on the table and the verbal from the from the staff I think it's a unique feature of the restaurant. I, yeah for the most part, cannot think of another place that I've ever been yeah, besides yeah. like a barbecue shop where they have like a menu written on the wall. But at diner, Hey, you believe
4: no one's copied that? I, it, it, You know, no one We've been really copied a lot. And that one's never been copied.
3: No one really verbals the menu. I know. Um, why did you start doing that? Uh, has there ever been pushback to go to a printed menu there? Oh yeah, definitely
4: pushback. Uh, you know, the thing is, is that I know this doesn't, sound real but it really was accidental we were building the restaurant and we didn't think about op- having menus i tell that story often and people call bs on it or, or you actually you can curse here but the um the truth is we did opening day we realized we didn't have a menu so we actually just hand wrote the menu and in the beginning we didn't have a pos system either so we would actually write the bill on the paper too the idea was that right on the table right on the table like we would be like we would circle all the things that you had and then write $4, $4, $4. But then we also realized that it was really trouble figuring out the tax on the fly.
3: <laughs> <laughs> you didn't want to have calculators hanging at out the a table. A bit of a bummer at, seemed, at the end of the a little
4: deal. bit of a bummer. So, um, but that's what we, that is how it happened. And there's been some pushback from staff. Obviously, it, it has informed a lot of what we've done from a service standpoint and how we approach our guests. And it definitely has helped us kind of figure out who we are in the restaurant industry from that capacity. Um, but yeah, we have played around with a brunch menu and a lunch menu a little bit. And then like sort of like a shorter bit to write on the table.
3: We're going to talk about staffing and also the way that you build your front house and back of house teams. Mm -hmm. When we come back, we're going to take a quick break. Stay with us here on the line. Heritage radio.
1: This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a national nonprofit network with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Chefs Collaborative members work to make sustainable practices second nature for every chef in the United States. Chefs Collaborative was founded in 1993 by visionary chefs including Rick Bayless and Alice Waters.
3: Welcome back to The Line here on Heritage Radio. I'm joined by Andrew Tarlow, and I would love to ask you a couple questions about your staff, about the, the fabric of your restaurant. Yeah. Since your staff is so vitally important, they're the communication tool to your to your diners, to your guests, what you would probably consider your family. Um, I want to know, what do you look for when you hire? You've had incredible loyalty from your staff you've had people that are with you for a very very long time uh what were what are some things that you look for and when you hire and how do you work to retain your good people
4: great question um i mean i think certainly i definitely i think the company is built in a way that we are taking care of our employees and i think that that is strongly rooted in the culture of what we do so in that capacity, I think that really allows for someone to have tenure. And there's also, we try and create growth possibilities inside of the business so that people can actually grow into new roles. So I think those are kind of one some of the reasons for tenure. In terms of hiring people, <clears throat> I mean, I think the biggest hire I had, like we talked about earlier, was Caroline. So once I got Caroline, it was kind of, easier, or it's been easier to find great people since then. Um, I think she becomes a magnet, not that she's with me anymore, but she became a magnet for other people to want to work there. Certainly Sean and Dave, who have worked for me for a long time, Sean not anymore, like we talked about, but um, were inspired by what she had accomplished when they got there over the seven, you know, for seven years before they even showed up.
3: When you have diner, when you have your one physical restaurant and Caroline is there and she's attracting quality young talent, Mm -hmm. uh, when you decided to grow to three, four different locations and more, what type of infrastructure did you have to build in, both from your perspective, but also just... I mean, when you go from one restaurant to two to three, you have to address the fact that you're now a bigger business. Yes, so we have had growing pains, but so can you talk about those growing pains and how you, if you've been able to overcome them and also some places where you haven't been so successful?
4: Sure. So one thing that we've done is we've grown slowly, even though we certainly have a lot of businesses, we haven't grown that fast. Um, Most of the time when we open new businesses, it is because the staff inside one of the businesses has grown to a place where they need the next challenge. So even when we opened at the hotel, we took Jason, Sean, Min, Aaron Crowder, all these group of people who had worked for me for a really long time, and we kind of like duplicated and they all went there. And then we repopulated at Diner and Marlowe. Well, this is actually, you
3: you, uh, hire and then you promote from within. Yes. And by giving people upward mobility, they don't have to leave. That's right. But that is a rarity that's very difficult to keep someone for even a year these days um what type what are the specifics like how what is the what is the vibe that you create yeah how
4: do you get people to stay i'm just kidding um i you know i might so i think the way we do it is that my i orient my job towards them right so i feel like It's my job to be working for them in the same capacity. They're there to be working for the guests and or for the businesses. So my highest and top priority on a daily basis is like, is everyone happy? Is everyone doing a good job? And do they still want to be there? What makes them want to come to work, right? What makes them want to be there? I mean, part of buying whole cows was like, how do I inspire my team, right? Certainly I had a whole litany of reasons why it was the best thing for us to do, environmentally and health wise and sourcing and all those things, but also it inspired a whole lot of people to want to be there.
3: Right. So when, so what are the mechanisms for feedback that exist? Are there, you know, weekly and monthly meetings that you say, who's got a crazy idea? Let's talk yeah, about so, it. And, yeah. and then, you know, does, does someone come to you and say, I absolutely want to work on this project and then is there a mechanism for Did trying I, to put those into place?
4: Yeah, you'd be surprised actually there isn't that much that as much as new businesses have bubbled inside of it it's more bubbles like through talent and through like a longer idea. Very rarely do you, does someone come and say like, Oh, I really want to make donuts, can you help me make donuts? Right? It's more like She Wolf came out of at Romans we really wanted to make our own bread and so we hired a baker named Austin. And he came in, and then we were really impressed with the bread he was making. And then the other chefs in the company wanted that bread. And then we expanded through that process, right? So, and now it's obviously in Union Square and in farmer's markets and everything else. But it wasn't out of this, this idea, like Austin wasn't working like inside the company and saying, hey, I really want to like run my own bread program, or I want to have my own bread business, um. everyone so yeah so not really there's not this like crazy idea we're also like rooted in the fundamentals of our day-to-day and like rooted in like you know is the businesses working so I think there's a lot of focus on where are we at right now and where do we want to take it versus like dreaming about wanting to like all of a sudden now make donuts right because that, that idea of like Wanting something, we don't try and chase the new, I guess is what I'm trying to say. We're sort of trying to chase success of what we do every day. And then what bubbles out of that is what is the next thing.
3: I ask a lot of guests of this show about how they manage their hours in the day. How do they manage their specific time that they allocate to the restaurant, you have many locations. I'm curious. I assume that there is no such thing as a normal day for you, but do you try to maintain a physical presence in in all of them in some consistent way? Uh, yeah. You have a large family, yeah. so I'm curious. Do you do you wake up and say like I'm popping into
4: one, two, and three today, or uh, yeah. you know? So my my day, the day part of my day is uh, pretty. It's pretty um, structured. I definitely have very specific meetings with chefs and GMs and management teams and, like, CFOs and HR teams throughout the week, Monday through Thursday. Um, and then I try and position myself in one or two of the restaurants three nights a week, give or take, sometimes four, sometimes two. Um, and then if I'm not there, if it's, like, only two, maybe that third, I would take someone on the team out to dinner or go see someone else or see something else but normally three nights a week I am with staff in some capacity either in the dining room or you know seeing something else how you mentioned, you know, HR, uh, did yeah. that come about
3: after a certain number of locations or did that start happening once you got in the hotel business and things really got a lot larger when you open Reynards, which is in the Wythe hotel located yeah. on Wythe in Williamsburg, yeah. that was a huge project. It was <clears throat> over $30 million and it's, uh, it has a lot of various, touch points but the main is the the restaurant on the main floor and then there's a bar upstairs but there's yeah. also an event space so if you can talk a little bit about how that how different was that project from what you had had previously done and how did it come to be
4: yeah i mean that project um you know we had so many close people who i had worked with for so long on that project in the opening team and we also ended up bringing back probably three or four, probably more actually, maybe six key staff who actually had left and come back and then worked there for five years with us. So in the end, there was a little bit of like a reunion tour for us in opening that restaurant. Um, So of course, the beginning was hard like any opening, but there was a lot of joy that happened and a lot of like cultural components that got implanted into that building from what we had done before and like opening it new. Um, the process of building it was long, you know, I mean, it, it was a, a longer process. The banking crisis happened in the middle. So we took a pause. It kind of gave, I have two business partners in that whole business and it gave me an opportunity to kind of really get to know them and meet them, which I think has been great and invaluable in terms of like, our relationship together and how we run that business. Um, but go back to your earlier question. I had HR prior to opening the hotel. Um, I got very lucky. This woman, Leah Campbell, who started as an intern at the Denver Journal, um, then started working in my office, and then proceeded to create an HR department in our business so it's another person who actually recently left, but had been there for eight to nine years who basically created a full-on HR department for us and kept us very safe.
3: So you run Diner's Journal, which is a publication, and yeah. are the offices above Marlow? The offices are above Marlow and & Sons. And tell me a little bit about how Diner's Journal came to exist and why on top of you know, running sustainably thoughtful restaurants and yeah. having a family and a hotel, why also has a publication factored into your lifestyle?
4: Yeah, the Dining Journal is actually on pause right now since we've just finished a cookbook. But the book, the journal came out in a capacity that we thought that we had a different story to tell the world about food and about sourcing and about the people who were um, doing all of that work, including like... Where were our inspirations and where we were we thinking about in terms of food? At the time, this is like pre-phones, pre-blogs, pre-all of that stuff. So certainly it was an analog thing. Um, I think now our voice in that is, you know, there's a lot of people who have like have found their voice in this story. And it's different than Sever or Bon App or even those guys and where their directions that they have taken it. Um, so it originally popped out of an idea of, one, Caroline wanted to make a cookbook. We didn't know how to do that. We didn't have access to agents. And we were kind of a, had this DIY spirit, so we just did it ourselves. But it really came out of this idea of her wanting a book, but also us wanting to tell a different story about the food world.
3: And so I know it's on pause, but how long has it, how many uh, we, publications
4: have you done now? I think we're at like 36, something like that. We ran a, it for it's a quarterly? It was quarterly, so mm-hmm. we did it for I want to say nine years.
3: And when's the cookbook coming out? What's so that the book all is out? out? Okay,
4: the cookbook is out. We uh, it's called Dinner at the Long Table. Um, it's great. You should go get a copy. It's a beautiful book that came out in the fall, and um, I'm super proud of it. It's uh, sort of a culmination of a lot of what we've been talking about in terms of food, in terms of um, how to serve a big group of people and how to, like, throw festive parties in your house. Um, and sort of how to translate what has happened in the restaurant world outside of that world into home.
3: Your spaces are all different, but it could be said that you can... You feel like you're in an Andrew Tarlow restaurant. You can... There's a certain style of... uh hospitality and also a certain style of food that's informed by the choices that you and your chefs and your teams make. I'm curious what you think about the whole fast, casual explosion that's happening in food these days. Uh, It's not a space, as far as I know, that you're currently involved in. Is it something that you ever think about? Uh, Are your... Yeah, tacos, fast casual. (laughs) Are your your restaurants always going to be one-offs? Or I know you did have two Mexican spots, but I mean, like, you know, will there ever be a diner Shanghai? You know, will there ever be a Romans uh, London? Tokyo.
4: Uh, I mean, I would never say never, but I'm more interested in one-offs than I am in duplicates. And, you know, the, even the experience of opening a second Bonita was interesting because they had morphed a lot and changed quite radically. And the one in Fort Greene became a little bit fancier and we definitely had plated dishes and we sold a lot more entrees. We're obviously the one, well, not obviously, but the one in Williamsburg, we sold a lot more tacos and a lot more burritos and that type of thing. Um, I don't, I really enjoy building and designing the restaurants. So I think I would continue down the one-off mark one-off trend um i don't really have any interest in fast casual restaurants um i understand their purpose but i don't really want to do that work um i'm probably a little bit late to the game anyway how do you do the design
3: and build out of your restaurants do you work do you do it yourself who do you help with the uh, overall aesthetics like how do you make the wood and material choices everything that goes into that I'm curious like is that you and your wife that make those choices yeah or? I mean
4: I do that the certainly like everybody on my team is a little bit involved certainly my wife is but um, I've designed all the restaurants the I've been working with the same builder since building diner and this gentleman um, is a, obviously a close friend of mine and he he was one of the people who showed up on my couch in that loft back in the day before we built diner and Ever since then, we've been working together so I can still work off the back of a cocktail napkin with him. And when we know what we're talking You're about. You're lucky you can trust your builder. Yeah. It's not something that a lot of people can say yeah, yeah, yeah. in New York. Uh,
3: I want to know about uh, Marlowe Goods. How did that come to be? And uh, what what are the projects that are coming out of that space now?
4: Yeah, super exciting. I mean, that is obviously an extension of thinking about the whole animal. And it's taken a long time for it to come to the fruition of where it is but we source all the hides from the animals that we purchased through the butcher shop, and now we've extended past that and sourcing all hides um, specifically to either one farm or through one slaughterhouse that are still um, animals that are grass-fed and that are locally sourced. We just don't get enough cows now. Um, the She has a shop on in the city in the East Village, and we sell... Design leather bags and leather goods, as well as clothing. That's all organically sourced. Um, and it, do you also sell
3: it at uh, at the store in Williamsburg. Or we, have it-
4: a, we have a few items in the store in Williamsburg. A lot less. I mean, the items are expensive, so it's a little tricky to have to start talking about a six hundred dollar bag. And how come that six? You know, we do have them there, but they definitely sell. There's definitely a better story inside of her own store where she can really control that conversation.
3: Communicate better with the people that come in and yeah. have that face to face These people time are buying a $4
4: them. coffee and then they're like, gonna <laughs> buy a $700 back.
3: Yeah, it's it, not quite the impulse purchase yeah, that a croissant is. Exactly. Uh, I, I wanna know a little bit about uh, if you have any other projects on the horizon that you can talk about. And uh, is I mean, there then, anything that's bubbling up right now?
4: Yeah, I mean, the main thing that we're doing is going gratuity free. So we've removed tips at Roman's and we've removed tips at Renard and Ide's. And that is really a full-on, you know, takeover of the restaurant in some capacity and a really rethinking of where our systems are and where our money goes. And we are working towards getting Diner, Marlon Zuns, and Achilles' heel also gratuity-free. So that's really what my focus has been on. Um,
3: Can you expand a little bit on on the gratuity-free idea. I know you created a a website that has some open source information about it, Uh, but you know, why? What was the, why the choice to go gratuity free? And also what does that mean for your staff?
4: Yeah. I mean, the big why obviously is to try and level the playing field between the back of the, back of the house and front of the house. You being a chef, you obviously understand that disparity. I mean, in 2017 now, it's really hard for someone who lives in new york to be paid below or at minimum wage and expect them to perform correctly it kind of goes back to this caring about our employees and really thinking about what does it mean to have staff members come and try and do this job successfully and actually get paid to do it um that's really the big why we also feel like there we also really would like to be in a different kind of control of our front of the house staff. I think the idea that they can work for the tables versus working for the business is a, a big mental shift. Um, and it allows us to kind of really, I mean, we already are, are the boss. Obviously we handle all the benefits. We take care of all the checks. We do all that stuff, but now we really can actually be in control of the whole thing. And it allows us to give raises, Right, A front-of-the-house server could only really get a raise by working Saturday night versus working Tuesday night. Now we have staff members who have kids and who would like to work Monday day and Tuesday day, and in essence, from an hourly standpoint, they make the same amount of money on a Monday day than they do on a Saturday night. Um, so it's a huge cultural change for us, um, and it's huge for us to like expand that through all those businesses. In
3: terms of those actual numbers, a Saturday versus a Monday and sort of what goes into that secret sauce, uh, is it true that anyone can see the numbers if they ask, any yeah,
4: s- staff member? Totally. So part of the way we have been successful since we do buy our food in a very specific way and now we pay our employees in a very unique way, it's important that the bottom line is really watched. So one of the ways we have figured out by how to do that is by sharing the numbers with the staff. Um, Again, as I've said in many programs, not many people take us up on it besides the people who kind of are mandated to do it, like GMs and managers. But in essence, I would like to bring everybody into the process of making that restaurant great and making the restaurant successful. I don't need to exclude anyone from that. Do you feel that by
3: showing the numbers, it provides greater understanding to why you make the choices that you make? Is that the main is, that the, is it just transparency? I
4: mean, transparency, but also I think it allows, I mean, it should allow people to make better decisions. Like, why are those forks constantly being bought and why do we need to, you know, why are they getting thrown out? And how can we figure that out? Versus, like, it just going into a black box that no one knows about.
3: What advice would you have for someone who's uh, been working in the New York City food scene for some time? And they're looking to do kind of what you did with Diner, join up with a friend and a partner and go out on their own. What's something that you maybe wish that you could redo that if you could talk to someone who's hoping to maybe strike out on their own for the first time that you would give them a bit of advice in that capacity?
4: Um, I would say the biggest one, if at all possible, buy the real estate. That's the biggest one
3: a near impossibility a near in, impossibility in this
4: day and age. But if that, if there was one thing that I wish that would be the one wish or a, the one thing I would say someone should try and do at all costs.
3: You have, as we briefly touched on, you have a, a large, wonderful family and yeah. you live in the city. Uh, your wife has a business of her own that's associated with the restaurant. So I'm curious is how do you, how do you, Turn off the restaurants If you do uh, If if you don't how does that Kind of affect your life And yeah. if you do is there like Is it you know after 11pm No calls from the restaurant unless There's a, there's a fire you know yeah. what, How does that balance uh, Function or not function
4: Yeah I you know I have Obviously all my kids have grown up With me owning restaurants So they're embedded into the Sort of fabric of that day-to-day in a very real way. I think um, I haven't tried to compartmentalize it. I have tried to more think of it all as one thing. I don't think the restaurants as being a noose or like an intense amount of work. Like, sure, I mean, for me as a manager, like it's about me being organized in the capacity that I don't need to be there on Sunday, that I actually pay someone to be there on Sunday. And that falls on my skill set of what I can do as a leader and what, what my expectations are. Right. So, but in the end, I think if like I worked this Friday night, I was totally happy to be there. And it happens like there was one of my managers out for, a, she was getting married and a lot of the staff went to that wedding. So, and I actually said I wasn't going to go to the wedding and I stayed back and work like that's totally fine. You know, I don't, I'm not, I think people who try and create real boundaries, they end up getting crossed versus these lines that are a little bit more blurry It just becomes an extension of what you do every day. Do you enjoy what you do every day? If you do, then it's not a big deal having to wake up at 8 o'clock and go to work. Right? I don't know if that answers it, but I feel like... I don't don't feel like like it's either this or it's that. Right? It's all one thing.
3: Andrew, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thank you. Everybody, come tune in next week. Tuesdays at 11 a.m. for The Line here on Heritage Radio.
2: Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter.